All right, we're live. Doc, stop rushing me. It's not my fault the thing loads so slow, all right? It's old. Are you sure that it's that that's loading slow and not you? Also a possibility, but my doctor said we can't talk about that. So, hey, are you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Blaine Pardo or Blaine Lee Pardo, you might know him that way, uh, introduce himself. So can you tell us who you are? I'm Blaine Pardo. I've been a writer of science fiction since 1985, writing in the Battletech universe. Uh, I've written for numerous game systems. I'm a true crime author. I'm a military history writer. Uh, I do alternate history, uh, political thrillers, horror. I do a little bit of everything. Anything I like reading, I write books on it. So uh, a little bit of everything. So I have a lot of fun in my life. All right. So true crime. I, I have this saying because my mother likes to watch the uh, the Oxygen Channel, How to Kill Your Husband shows, I call them. So I'm just saying, when you say you write that kind of stuff, people are going to be looking at you if anything happens to anyone in your family. Absolutely. So you know. My wife, if, if anything ever happens to my wife, I am so going to jail. And the, all they got to do is check my browser history because, you know, I'm looking <laughs> up stuff that I shouldn't be looking up, you know, as part of this. So did you did you hear about that true uh, the crime author is a female out uh, West Coast somewhere that her books writing about murder were how she got caught for actually murdering her husband? Yeah, I, you know, it's not helping our genre at all. The good news is, though, I do write with my daughter. Uh, she's my co-author for True Crime, so it takes a little bit of the edge off. Well, that's because I know only two people can keep a secret if one's dead. Right. That's right. And that's I'm right. not likely to kill her. I'm That's encouraging her. for her. Not, no, if she made it past her teen years, it's much easier, much smoother sailing. <laughs> that does help. So uh, the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. So, Seska, did you, uh, before I scheduled this episode, did you know who, who Blaine was? I did because I am, I haven't read the Battletech novels myself, but I grew up with them being a fixture in my household. So I definitely knew because um, I am the result of what happens when people like us keep the kid. So, and my That's... brothers are absolutely huge fans of Blaine's. So oh, cool. All right. And so I, uh, I've always, you know, loved, you know, the, the concept of mechs. So uh, when he was in the news recently for the thing we shall not talk about, because we are a political, I, I reached out. I'm like, hey, why haven't I asked him on the show yet? Although it, that's the hard thing. Doc keeps reminding me, like some of these authors that are more traditionally published, you know, I, that I grew up reading. I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't ask them. The weird thing is, is whenever I do, they always say yes, because who doesn't want free press? Uh, so I, I'm trying to branch out to uh, to more established authors this uh, this coming season because Doc will nag me if I don't. So if you don't like this interview, dear listener, it's all Doc's fault. Well, you know, and most hey. most fiction authors look forward to a chance to talk about what their craft is and what they're working on. Yeah, and I, I th we have to always uh, be explicit when we say this is for the readers and the listeners. Like we don't get into how to be a writer. I honestly don't think my book sales warrant me ever talking about that. So, <laughs> and if I ever get to that point, I probably will be too busy to talk about that. So instead we just focus on being nerdy with our, with our guests. 
Yes, we are very good at the nerdy stuff. We are, but Doc, before we go any further, he has to pass the test. So ask him the religion question. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? I know there's no mechs in this, but... Um, old school Star Trek and a big fan of Firefly and the original trilogy of Star Wars only. With oh, the exception so of Rogue fan. One, I like Rogue. I like Rogue One. I thought it was good. Um, Rogue One went very with the classic feel. Yeah, and everything I, I like they, that classic feel. I feel like everything else they screwed up except for the final episode of Obi Wan. To be fair, that was good. I have but the it. five episodes I had to go through to get there really were painful. <laughs> I I always wonder when people are like, "Oh, it's so good! You just gotta watch through like the first root canal or five. and it's like, like how much time do you have in your life that you're willing to do that? Yeah, that's a good question, Doc. We've got an even more important question, and only Blaine can answer. No, no, no. Do you? She said there are no mechs in Star Wars. Would you qualify the walkers as mechs? I would say probably yes. I'd count them. Yeah, they really are. You know, they're not traditional mecha, but they're mechs. You know, it, how, where, how do you qualify what the hell a mech is? It's something that's piloted that is roughly humanoid shape or, yeah, I, or walks on two or three legs. A mech is like a one person thing, though. And the walkers, they always struck me as like a crew serve weapon. Sorry, Battletech, we've got the heavy super heavies, which are three-person crews. We've got pilots and co-pilots and some of the mechs, like the Battlemasters. So mechs have multiple people in them. So uh, Okay. I'm allowed to. It's okay for me to be wrong. It's okay. I love mechs, but I think we are. I am more used to seeing the one-persons other than uh, Pacific Rim. I loved Pacific Rim. It read like Battletech meets anime. So. Pacific Rim had its moments. I, you know, it gets dogged a lot, but it's kind of dogged in the way Starship Troopers gets dogged. You know, it, it's like I don't think you fully appreciate it until you watch it a few dozen times, and then it's kind of funny. Oh, see, I I like loved it from from, from uh, meet cute at first first mech. I loved it. So. so uh, if you find the conversation of what is a mech interesting, we are going to be doing a fireside chat uh, later this month about it that will air on uh, Tanks and Mechs, Oh My. And Blaine has graciously agreed to come back for that one, along with some other authors you might have heard of. So that should be fun to get nerdy with that. And uh, we'll try to control Doc's brothers who might want to sit in on that one. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> All right, Doc. Easy. You lock that's the door? Easy. Yeah. Perfect. Only Spawn can open the door, it seems, but Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or The Wheel of Time. Which one's your favorite for fantasy? I'm going to go with Lord of the Rings. I am a big Game of Thrones fan. I'm not a big George R.R. R. Martin fan because he hasn't finished writing the series. Well, um, he's never going to. He's dead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then George he R. R. sent it over to Sanderson, who's no better. Well, George no, 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 Martin's wait, not George? dead. It's the guy. Oh wait, I'm sorry. I was thinking Wheel of Time. Yeah, the Wheel of Time. Right. I, I, I haven't gotten into Wheel of Time, and it's mostly just due to lack of commitment on my part. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there's some Game of Thrones fans ready to kill me now. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, George has been dead in some respects, but all all hate mail can go to J.R. Hanley at Blasters. <laughs> so, would you consider uh, Max? Do you think Max can exist in a fantasy world? Max in a fantasy world. Um, if they're yeah, powered by yeah. magic, maybe like a column. Yeah, or why not? Why not? Because uh, I kind of consider steampunk quasi fantasy, and I, I okay. I, I totally subscribe to that. Yeah. Okay. All right. My favorite, one of my favorite animes is a steampunk mecha anime. Why haven't I, we done a review episode of that one yet? Why did you tell me this thing existed? Because you have more important things to do, like go write me a book. Fair point, fair point. Uh, we are branching out, dear listener, to try to do more review episodes. We like interviewing authors, but we want to do more than just that. So uh, we, we're, we're brainstorming, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, and, and we'll see what you like. But, uh, Doc, you get to ask him one more question before I steal the show from you. You won't steal the show from me. I just let you have fun. It's because <laughs> I am generous and caring, and I want to make you do all the hard work. So which one do you love more, sci-fi or fantasy? Okay, this is going to get me in trouble. I actually enjoy fantasy more than sci-fi. And yes. I write sci-fi. And, and I know people are going to go that's counterintuitive, but I think fantasy and sci-fi are really the same genre. They just, it's a different tech level and that's all. You know, there's a difference between fake technology, which is magic and magic, which is magic. Okay, we're think, keeping him. Yeah, I, I I like I like fantasy a lot, and I and I really enjoy it. And I run a D and D group. I and I've been running it for, I've been running D and I have the white boxed edition. So I started in 1972 running D and D. I have a fantastic campaign it's on my blog. I I novelize our our sessions, and you know I. I have fan, great campaigns and stuff. You know, I don't do that that often with science fiction. So do you still uh, play the white box or did you upgrade to any addition along the way? I'm on version five right now and I'm not going to go to the new crap. Um, Cause wizards of the coast is just shaking down people for money and making everything digital. And they're ruining what is the true gaming experience, which is people sitting across from a table and using their imagination. When you start digitizing all of that, and making it all virtual, I, I think you're actually ruining what the essence of gaming is. Well, I think yeah. you're ruining the part of gaming that is also in some ways very therapeutic. Yeah. So it's a social event. It it's a lot of times this is the one time that some of these folks get out and can enjoy themselves. And they yeah. get to divorce themselves from all of the other crap in their lives to enjoy each other across from a table. And they're all equal. And everybody has fun, and it's it's a good time. And it, it, Wizards of the Coast is going to digitize all that and ruin it. Don't mind a little bit of some of like the virtual tabletop stuff in some cases, but that's because as a vet, I have friends who are scattered throughout the globe, and some of them from my gaming group, and that's the only way I can keep track of them and play with them still. But having said that, it's not the same thing. And I don't want to do that all the time. Like, it's great. And we only really, I only look forward to those sessions as much because of having known them in person. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it makes sense. Otherwise, you might as well be playing WoW. Yeah. Which I played WoW and I went, were... why am I doing this? Why am I coming over to your house and then playing WoW? I can sit at home and do this. Yeah. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to compete with uh, the plastic crack that is Warhammer and how they monetize. Hey! It's not <sighs> crack. Crack costs way less than Warhammer does. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Honestly, you know they they've got to stop playing marketing games and just create good product, and then the rest of us will be happy. Yeah. So, the question Doc was supposed to ask is which one you not which one you love more though, but which was your first love? So, did you find sci-fi or fantasy first? I was probably sci-fi first uh, when Planet of the Apes came out, and I'm dating myself here. I turned sixty in a month. Um, when Planet of the Apes came out, man, that was it. I bought all of the books. Um, I read them. They were, and, and I got sucked into that. I read a lot of Jack Chalker, um, who was a fantastic writer that bridges science fiction and fantasy. The Well World series is so phenomenal and still holds the test of time. I've started rereading it not too long ago. And it's, it's that perfect blend of fantasy and science fiction together. He did such a good job of that. I, I got hooked on a lot of that stuff early on. I, you know, and I, like most people, I went to Lord of the Rings very early on too. And Lord of the Rings is just something that's you. It. I don't think we'll ever see it surpassed in my lifetime. Although I've heard rumors, Wheel of Time is up there. I think what the difference is, though, is Lord of the Rings was also very genre defining. Yeah, in some ways, it's like BattleTech is very genre defining in and of itself for people who like mechs. Yeah. Um, I'm going to piss off all the George R. R. Martin, uh, all the uh, Robert Jordan fans and go, even though I haven't read the series, I haven't really had anybody convince me successfully by more than maybe like, okay, cool. I'm glad you're passionate about it, that it's genre defining. Like nobody else has done, lots of other people have done worlds that go through cycles of tech and, and magic. So I'm not sure that it's as genre defining as Lord of the Rings. I think Lord of the Rings will always be a define modern science fantasy. Absolutely. It, it just, it, it, everything else is compared against it. Nobody compares against George R. R. Martin stuff. I'm sorry. It just doesn't happen. Uh, you know, it's, but everybody compares against Lord of the Rings and it's almost like a cult like religion that follows it. That's why we call them the religion questions. Yep. So what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? How did you find this sort of the umbrella that includes all the things? Oh, yeah. Speculative fiction. I The the guy that suckered me into that was uh, Harry Turtledove. Ooh. <laughs> Harry Turtledove. Love that man's writing. You know, Harry Turtledove, I think, is one of the people that really, def when he did Guns of the South, Yes. And, and did his subsequent World War II series and his subsequent series that covered an alternate World War I and World War II uh, with a splintered America. You know, I, I don't like his politics at all, but I love the guy as a writer, man. He is fantastic. And, I, and it's just hard to, yeah, everything, everybody compares against Turtle Dove. So in that genre, and I'm sure I get compared against him in, in some ways too. So, yeah, I but the guy does a great job. He suckers you in, and and he you, 
takes a simple premise and makes a change or two. And then the next day, everything's a ripple effect from that point on. And I just love it. I just love alternate history that. It's nice to see a uh, history degree made made good because everyone, when you major in history, like, what are you going to do with that? Teach? So the fact that he he made good with his history degree, right? Old history, I'm 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 glad for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every coach I've ever met taught history. You're not selling it for me, Doc. So we're just going to move on. Uh, so what is it <laughs> you love about speculative fiction as a genre? Uh, for me, what I like about it is you you are taking the readers and you're changing an aspect of something that they're already familiar with. And it takes them on a completely different path and a journey. And it allows you to introduce characters that interact with that change that you've made. And, and that is the essence of a good book is the characters. I mean, you know, the plots are, are plots and, and they're interesting and there's always a twist or two. And we like that. What people love to read about are characters. And when you change history or you change the course of history, you get to then have the characters interact with that. And it puts the reader right there and they like experiencing it, I think. And so it gives you fertile ground that's familiar for the reader to, to have your characters play in. Okay, that is a, uh, that's a good answer. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you deciding to tell stories in this space? Well, you know, I write military history books, and so I, I've got a good sound understanding of doing actual research at the National Archives and doing all that stuff. And, you know, I'd done books in the past. I did one on the Cuban Missile Crisis where I got declassified the actual invasion plans for Cuba. And I started realizing that could actually be an alternate history book all on its own. What if we had invaded Cuba? Because I actually had to go through some of those aspects in writing the book, how this militarily would have played out. And I realized, gee, that's, a, that's alternate history. I didn't even think about it that way. you know. And it, to me, it's a good bridge for anybody who is marginal you know, they don't like hardcore science fiction. They don't like hardcore fantasy. But with speculative areas or alternate history, you can suck people in who might not normally be a part of this genre. Yeah, I could see that. If we had actually supported people at the Bay of Pigs, would it have turned out differently? That would be an interesting proposition. Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of things we could play. We could do this all day, believe me. All right. And I would enjoy it, but Doc might fall asleep, so we'll move on. <laughs> you know, I like history, just not at like 10, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Well, you know, there, you are, you're some... not that interesting. He is, but you're not. But you know, <laughs> I, I've been reading some stuff lately that is borderline speculative history. And have you, I don't know if you guys have read Forgotten Ruin. Um, I have. Okay. <laughs> I, I yes. love that. I love that book. And I love it because it's like, okay, so what happens when you throw a bunch of army rangers against an army of orcs? You know, that has been, those kinds of questions have been floating around the war college since forever. I know the famous one was if you took the third Marine expeditionary force and you stuck it in the middle of the Roman empire at its prime, would the third Marine expeditionary force beat the Roman legion? 
And the answer, of course, is no, which is counterintuitive because it's the, the point of the exercises teach you logistics win. And even if every bullet is a one for one kill and every shell is eventually they've got more bodies to throw at you than you've got beans and bullets and they win because firing maneuver doesn't work if you can't fire or maneuver. Right. I, uh, so. There's some fun stuff. I mean, I just, I, I'm enjoying some of these borderline things that bridge between the two and, and allow you to play a little bit of speculation. So and to me, I really, I, I got the book kind of on a whim. I started going through it and I was like, okay, this is funny on so many levels and I'm enjoying it. And if I'm enjoying it, it's good fiction, I guess. If you like, um, oh, we lost talk. If you like military portal fantasy or fiction, you should check out um, Eric uh, Allen Idleheights Steiger's Tigers, which is basically the premise of what happens if you stick the missing Ninth Roman Legion in the middle of Middle Earth. It's sort of the premise that starts it. It's it's pretty good too. We've had him on the show as well. well I'm gonna have to check that out. I'll I'll, uh, I'll send it to you after the show. I'll send you a link with it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. Were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? That shaped me as a storyteller. Um, you know, I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, and, and in college, while I was a business major, I earned my money. You know, I wrote for the campus newspaper. I did an editorial column. I did. Uh, I wrote commercials for radio while I was in college. You know, I got paid like five bucks each for them, but it was like income, and it was kind of cool, and it was a lot of fun. And I, to me, it was just the the first time I think that I walked into a game store and saw something that I wrote on a shelf was that's the hook. Cause the first time you see your name on a shelf somewhere, be it a bookstore or game store or whatever, you start going, okay, I, I kind of want to see more of that. So for me, that's the formulative part. It, it's just, it's that rush of how, how cool is this that I'm entertaining other people who I don't even know at this point. Yeah, it's one thing when friends and family buy the book and, you know, that's that's always cool that they're supportive, but it's entirely, they sort of have to support you by nature of being family. It's always cool when people who didn't have to buy the book but chose to, uh, you know, enjoy your stuff. That, that's a special feeling. Yeah, well, you know, and the first, I went to Gen Con back when it was in Milwaukee back in the early days. And I'll never forget when Baltech was at its peak, we did a Baltech seminar that had like 150 or 200 people in it. You know, and, and it was like, oh, my God, these people are all fans and they're shoving books in front of you to get autographs and they're they're hoarding around you, asking you questions about you know, a page six of Snord's Irregulars, second column, third paragraph. You wrote the following. How does that apply to this other? But, you know, it's like, oh, my God, you, you think I've committed this stuff to memory and I haven't, you know, um, you know, it, it's you realize after a while that you're writing it for a much broader audience. That's kind of cool. Yeah. All right, Doc. I know I know your Internet's being wonky, but next question is you. Duh. So she froze again. All right. We'll rock on without her. Um, so transitioning from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. Has anyone ever asked for your autograph since you started writing? Oh, absolutely. I, I get probably once a week, sometimes twice a week, uh, 
I, I have a whole process for if you want me to autograph stuff, you know, send me a self-addressed envelope with a return envelope inside. I've got some stuff sitting over here. I've got to autograph and send out to fans. So I do it all the time. What was the first time like when someone said, hey, you're that Blaine guy. Can you sign my book? It's actually a nice rush. Uh, it, it's a little embarrassing. Um, yeah, I, I don't savor that experience the way some some authors do but it's fun i mean it it's rewarding when somebody asks you that um so yeah it, i enjoy it a great deal but uh you know i i'm not the kind of person that sets up a table to sign autographs in a bookstore that's that's not my shtick um uh, but i i absolutely love it when some fan approaches me and says hey i've, I've got a bunch of stuff. I had a guy last year who called me and he said, I'm at the, your local game store. Can you come down? I've got 14 things for you to sign. And I'm like, okay, sure. You know, what the heck? So, you know, it, sometimes it's a lot of fun. So I guess that answers the question of whether you've seen anybody out in the wild with your books. Oh, absolutely. I, it, the sequel to Blue Dawn, uh, which is called The Most Uncivil War, um, my wife came back the other day and she said uh, in our little community we live in, she goes, look at the beach. There's somebody, I took the picture of somebody reading your, my book at our, in our community, sitting at the beach, reading the book. And I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> nice. Nice. So finally, what would be the weirdest or funniest interaction with a fan you've had since you started writing? I would say the weirdest is I do have an online stalker and the person's a little bit unhinged. I mean, I had to get a protective order against this person. You know, you don't think about that stuff as you're writing military science fiction, you know, that you're going to end up with somebody who goes off the deep end. But it does happen. I think the Internet's a great thing. I think it's also it, it really brings out some of the worst in people at times. Yeah, that, that can be concerning. I've known authors who had people show up at their kids' bus stops because reasons, and it's just, sometimes people suck, but I, I try to let the, the good way outweigh the bad. So Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I will say I have hundreds of very positive interactions for everyone that's negative, you know, so you kind of just disregard them after a while, but you have to be careful of the crazies. That's all. So what was it like the first time somebody asked for your autograph? He already answered that doc. We're on 15. Yeah. Does anyone ever asked for your autograph? That's 15. JR. Uh, no 15. Uh, so what is, uh, can you give us the reader's digest version of your body of work? JR can't count. A Reader's Digest version of my body of work. I've written over 90 books. Um, That's why we didn't say list all of them. <laughs> uh, you know, I started out doing a lot of just game source material uh, for Battletech, Renegade Legion, uh, Space 1889, a whole bunch of different games, Twilight 2000. I wrote a lot of supplement material and stuff like that, you know, scenario books and things along those lines. And then I got into doing novels for Battletech. I, I don't remember how many novels I've done, but it's a lot. Uh, I've written 25 of their source books, and I think I've done 18 or 19 or 20 novels or novellas for them. Um, 
You know, and then I branched. I I always liked reading military history, so I decided to start writing military history. So I got into that. Uh, did a lot of books on World War One, which is kind of my area of expertise at this point. Um, but I've also done some books on modern era stuff. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I started doing true crime with my daughter, um, and I wrote about stuff mostly for, and in areas where I've lived. Uh, and try to focus on unsolved crimes. And uh, I still write science fiction. I've got a new science fiction series coming out in the next month or two from uh, Wargate book publishing on, uh, it's called Land and Sea, which is a science fiction series. So yeah, I'm constantly, you know, upping my game and going in with different publishers to try different things. It's, it's exciting and it's fun. Well, the good news that is we will like, link to his. Like the way you describe it. Pardon? It does. I said that sounds She's... like a dream job. The way you described it, always you're always having a new challenge, doing something similar but different enough that it's new and it's fresh. Yeah, you know, it drove my agent nuts, but um, and it, you know, because he's always like, pick a genre, write in your genre, become an expert in your genre. Um. But you know what? You don't have to do that anymore. I, I think that's old school thinking. And to me, it's like, okay, I'll write in a lot of different genres. We like to call that genre fluid. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Or Project ADD, as JR likes to call it. <laughs> it. It is. But the good news is your website's pretty up to date. So we will link that in the show notes. And people who want to know oh. all the things you've written can find it there. But today, out of all of this wide range of stuff we're here to talk about blue dawn right okay yeah. so that's book one of a new series from you yeah it, it's i really wanted to do a series about a second american civil war and blue dawn's kind of the the spark that lights that match and then the next book most on civil war starts this and the next one's, uh, I just got the cover back on the new one, the third book, which will be out sometime in the next few months, which is uh, Confederacy of Fear. It, it just, it's a lot of fun to play with that concept. The core concept is a, a second American Civil War. What would that look like? Uh, with all the tech that we have, with all of the angst and ajna that's out there with people right now and i don't want to crawl through anybody's political beliefs including my own but you know there's a lot of fuel for that type of stuff and i think it's an interesting concept to play with so you've talked a bit about how but before we get too deep into this jr wants to cut to a commercial i know because somehow he thinks that's going to buy him a cup of coffee one day it might but for now we're going to show for the man <laughs> the war between Al Masia and the Empire of Kolokolvia is in its hundredth year. Casualties grow on both sides as the conflict leaves no corner of the world untouched. Alarian Glaskov's quiet life on the fringes of the Empire is thrown into chaos when an impossible tragedy strikes his village. When he is conscripted into the Tsarist military, he is sent to serve in The Wall, an elite regiment that pilots suits of armors made from the husks of dead golems. But the Great War is not the only or even the worst, danger facing Valerian, as he is caught in a millennia-old conflict between two goddesses. He must survive the ravages of trench warfare, horrific monsters from another world, and the treacherous internal politics of the country he serves. Servants of War, New Military Fantasy, by Master of Horror Steve Diamond, 
and international bestseller Larry Korea. Available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Pick up your copy today. I like that uh, we got the fantasy max for Blaine as the uh, the the guest. It sort of works, <laughs> given given his expertise. But I, I still think it's amusing every time we play that. I'm laughing that the uh, narrator mispronounced Bane books. I was gonna say he did it. Oh my goodness! They made that commercial for us though, so we just rock it. Tony's That's gonna great. Play. It gives us something to talk about. So, you know, they say if you want to get people engaging in your content, put a typo in your in your uh, your title because then they're going to comment, if nothing else, just to tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> That's true. I've seen those with videos. Like, people will put fake, like, cooking, de- cooking demos up and they'll put, like, a fake bug in the flower or something just to get people to comment. <laughs> So that's how you do it. All right, we've got new cooking videos and put fake bugs in it, so we'll get more people. Uh, All right, seek proof that you can cook first. Well, I mean, nobody's died yet, but you just don't dig up my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Doc. Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk about the cover instead. (laughs) So let's talk about this really awesome cover. Uh, Was that your idea or your artist's idea? It was mine. Um, you know, everything I did in the book, I tried to pull from real life. Uh, and let's be honest, the summer of 2020 was pretty tumultuous within our country. Um, without, and again, I don't want to crawl into no, the No, I think it politics. was for, for all sides on all things. If it wasn't tumultuous for you, you must have been like in diapers. Well, yeah, and I, I I remember watching a news report early in that year where somebody was going, well, we should destroy the Mount Rushmore, you know, and let, return that land to the natives and shut down the park and things along those lines. It was some extremist group was talking about it. And that stuck in my mind as something that would really trigger people if you saw that, you know, if you saw what that kind of devastation was. So to me, it was... Um, it was something that that would resonate with people on both sides of the fence to see that image of a destroyed Mount Rushmore. And so that's why I chose it. So I, what would, what? I say there are other, like I've read um, political thrillers. The cool thing is, is it doesn't matter the, um, the politics of the person writing it. If the scene is believable, because you know, it's all fiction anyway, it could be really, really fun. So I've done I've done some or done some I've read some by other um, um, other authors that you know lean differently oh, than me that yeah that 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 wrote good what if on the second American Civil War what that might look like um, but Jr. Shush, what is the elevator pitch the thirty second elevator pitch for this book before Jr. starts narrating out over history again. Oh, the 30-second elevator pitch is this is a story about the overthrow of the American government. And it's really a story about the characters that want to get back to a semblance of normalcy five years after the overthrow takes place. And it's about those characters trying to get back to that normalcy. It's not that they're trying to roll the clock back. They're trying to get back to something that makes sense and is seen to them. And I think that's something that anybody can identify with. You know, it's we live in such weird times right now. And if you amplify that, which I do in the book, I think this is the way you get to that. 
Okay. That's a, that's a good as a elevator pitch as any. What do you think makes in the crowded field that is alt history and even the burgeoning uh, Second Civil War style of books, what makes yours special? What makes mine special is I take everything literally off today's headlines and amplify it and blow it out to the nth degree. And that becomes the fuel for the background, the setting for where these characters play. And to me, that's what makes it very interesting. I okay. get my material by watching the news at night. <laughs> that is a uh, good place to get it. Um, the So which tropes, when you were writing Blue Dawn, do you feel like you hit the best? When, when you say trope, what, what are you looking for exactly? Um, well, to be honest, people have broad definition of tropes. Like what, you know sort of stereotypes of, of the fiction genre that are yours, you know, the strong. Oh, yeah. oh this was definitely designed to be a political thriller. You know, it, more than fantasy, more than anything, and more than science fiction, it, it's a political thriller in many respects. And it covers a broad suite of characters. And the whole series, I keep expanding, adding more characters. Of course, some of the characters die. You, you get this ever-enlarging cast as the series goes on. I'm actually working right now on book five of the series, so I'm way ahead of what most of the fans are going to see for a while. Okay, that is always encouraging. So that's the one big fear of people that have burned way, been burned way too many times. As you start a really cool series, you really, really like it, and then the author just drops off the face of the earth. And yeah, you know, I mean, with the Land and Sea series, we have the first three books done, and one just cleared editing today. The other one's in edit right now, the second book. So the first three books are completely done. And we did that intentionally for that very reason. I did not want to launch the series and then have everybody go, so when's the next book coming out? It's okay. The first three books that launch the series are done in the box and are being worked on. And it's for the same reason I, with blue Dawn, I was well into the, uh, the second book by the time the first book was out. Is that self-published or did you go with a, uh, a small press publisher? It, it's actually one? a defiance press does it. Is that your press or is that? No, um... no it, it's not mine. I'm just, I'm just one of the writers. Cool. So what subgenres do you think this fits into? JR loves to get into the subgenres. Uh, subgenres, you know, honestly, it's mostly going to be the political thriller genre. Uh, the, I, there's not a lot of subgenre to this. <laughs> it's an action thing. I, no, no, no. I'm laughing because we always argue over this question, and he always <laughs> likes to keep it in, and I always let him win, even though I should really make him lose. Um, so <laughs> she would be happy if you got rid of the sci-fi and fantasy even and just called it speculative fiction and stuck them all together. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm a classic. I like sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, I, I'm going to side with her on that, JR. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, get voted off my own island. <laughs> it's fine. We don't have to hold a vote if that makes you feel better. <laughs> okay keep going okay uh, can you tell us a bit about your main character or I guess characters in this yeah game? this is actually different for me and it's something I've been wanting to get into it's an ensemble of characters 
Okay. And I like that because you can tell a broader story with these characters and it allows you to do what George R.R. R. Martin does, which I did enjoy the Game of Thrones series, is you could take a couple of characters who you might not normally think would ever fit well together, put them together, and you get interesting combinations that can occur. And, you know, hilarity ensues. The characters in this are really strong. I, what I started with when I worked on this is I said the, the key characters that people are going to focus on have to be female. And the reason for that is I think we don't empower that as much in fiction as we should. And these aren't manly characters. They're just serious, badass women characters. One is, you know, a secret service agent who, you know, is carrying this horrible burden and she's kind of a vigilante during a lot of this book. Uh, and she's kind of come to grips with some of the stuff she's done. The other is an operative who kind of changes sides in this, and she's a trained killer. That's what she does. She goes and fixes problems and has never really thought about the government she was working for at the time. And once she does and she realizes how corrupt it is, she kind of flips sides in this. Those are probably the, the two big characters. And one of the characters is just a guy whose dad dies early in the book from cancer and you know he realizes his father was this patriot and who you know carried this secret that he has to go find which includes why you got mount rushmore in front of you on on the cover he's got to go to the vault that's actually behind the head of lincoln uh at mount rushmore which actually exists so all the places etc. in the book are actual places that, you know, I pulled them up on Google Maps or I went to them physically and checked them out. And it makes it kind of an interesting story. So I like this mix of characters where you have the John Everyman, you've got these trained killers, you've got all these different characters interacting in this. And to me, it just makes a, it makes a fantastic ensemble to paint you a bigger tapestry. Awesome. So, Jr. Jr. is going to make me ask about secondary characters, but in an ensemble cast, I think everybody's kind of equal. Yeah, it really is. There's a lot of little characters that make some appearances, and then later on in later books, they come back as more major characters, which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've got one character who's just this innocent guy who totally buys into the, what the government's told him, what the media's told him and everything else. And that world gets shattered. And, and I think we've all experienced that at some point in our life where our values and our ideals suddenly you realize like, oh my God, I've been on the wrong side of this all along. And I really wanted to do that with that character. And I think Raul is just this wonderful character that that, you know, he, he taps that emotional bond, I think, with a lot of readers. I think everybody in their life has said, gee, there's that one issue that I had that I really thought I was solid on. And then somebody came along and convinced me somehow I wasn't. So. So how would you, uh, we obviously we don't want to get any spoilers. And this is sometimes dicey territory when we talk about thriller style stories, because sometimes the bad guy is the is the plot hook that, that, you know, is the mystery. So is there anything you could tell us about the bad guy without giving away the plot? The, the bad guy is also a badass female. 
and she is based very solidly on a current member of Congress. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to go into it. Yeah, this this is some some readers have figured it out pretty quickly. Other readers are like, "You're kidding me! That really? You made her smart? I can't believe you did that." Um, but, you know, I, I tend to think that you don't rise to that level in your life by being a complete moron. So, you know, I, I like good, smart, cunning characters. And I like characters that are true believers to their cause to the point where they will take extreme actions. And I think that makes for interesting stories, too. So so these characters with the story the way you organize it, is it focused more on the political thriller angle or are you going to focus more on the ground combat once this this um, thing blows up. You really don't see ground combat in this book. Um, this is about the characters and their interactions. Uh, you see some, you see some battling, you know, you're going to have some firefights and you're going to have some fisticuffs and stuff. Um, you get that. What you'll get is this is the start that kind of sets things up for the whole series. The next book, a most uncivil war actually starts getting into some actual, tanks shooting at people type th stuff so so when you started doing the battle planning did you actually like break out a sand table and start wargaming it or did you just sort of uh i, I, know, I did not wargame it per se but i will tell you i had a pretty detailed and for the second book the, the fighting takes place in the city of chicago and i was pretty familiar with where i was going to do this um and I will tell you, I had a pretty good map printed out in a very large way so I could plot where things were and, and how it was going to work. Um, so, yeah, there was some, there was some uh, I would call, military planning of this that actually took place. Urban planning or urban uh, warfare is is horrific. So that's there's lots of fodder for that one. So yeah. speaking of characters, it sounds like you put your characters through a lot of hell when you when you wrote this novel. So if they met you in a back alley, how do you see that interaction playing out with these ladies who you've tortured on the literary page? Uh, I think I get my ass kicked pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think a couple of the characters would shake my hands and thank me ultimately, but uh, I think uh, a couple of the characters would say, you asshole, and they'd beat the crap out of me. You put me okay. through hell. Yep, I did. It was for your own good. Trust me, later on you'll thank me. But, you know, with those books not being out yet, they'll go off only what they've seen so far and experienced. So I try not to think too much about meeting the characters. And I do think of who would play the characters on TV, you know, or if, if there was ever a movie. I, I have visuals of who the characters are. So it, it's easier for me to picture them beating the crap out of me. Do you ever plan on sharing who you uh, envisioned in your head with the with the readers, or is that something that's just well, know, the the one character who's the badass operative I, was Gina Carano was the template for it. So okay, yeah, and it, so it's easy to picture her beating the crap out of me. She did well in uh in the Star Wars movie series that oh, she, she was did. In playing the playing a badass. Oh yeah, Cara Dune was a great character, and I mean, it was the, it was a well done and well crafted character in the Mandalorian. So, speaking of characters, when you write, do you have a favorite archetype when you're writing these um, these badass women, or you know, whoever else you're writing in your other books? 
No, you know, sometimes what makes the badass is the situation you put them in. Um, especially when I'm doing like the land and sea series, I, one of the characters that becomes the, a very badass young woman, you know, is in that situation because her parents end up being killed and everything else. She ends up in this horrible situation and what emerges is almost kind of a Ripley level character out of somebody that that's a young, you know, 14 year old girl. And, you know, so some of it is the circumstances that the characters go through. It's not a particular archetype per se, but you know, I, I look for the care. You have to go to the origins of each of the characters. Each character has a pretty well-established arc and it goes beyond just the book they're in. It goes, you know, through the whole series where I'm going to take these characters. And, you know, so you have to look for what's the life defining events that change them along the way. And it's kind of a fun experience to do that. It's always a fun experience to follow along with as well. Yeah. So you've told a bit about the universe, but this is in the future. Um, can you give us a bit more other than that? It's about Five, it's five years into the future. Uh, it's after the government's been overthrown by some radical progressives that implement everything that they've ever wanted to. Um, they have sent anybody that doesn't agree with their political beliefs are sent off to social quarantine camps. You have mobs that are in the street that are inflicting social justice that are called social enforcers. Um, you know, they're the brown shirts of this there. And I patterned them after Antifa, which we had seen, you know, during the summer of 2020 and earlier. So, you know, you've got a very repressive government that's put into place to fulfill all of those things, which always happens when there's a violent overthrow. And a lot of this I patterned after the French Revolution. You know, when the French Revolution took place, there's a point where, the revolutionaries always have to have a target. And so they start turning on themselves as well. And so you're going to see some of that throughout the whole series. Uh, and it, it really does give me good fuel for that. And I make a couple of very direct references to that in, in Blue Dawn and in the subsequent books. So do we have any like international players that we're seeing or is it all really within the borders? Book three, we start seeing the international side to this. And okay, it's, and it's dark and gritty too, because there's a lot of people that would really thrill at the thought of the United States fight tearing itself apart in a civil war, you know, fighting a war against itself. Very, uh, and I, I feel bad saying very cool, but it does seem very interesting. And it's dark. If it weren't the country that I offered to like offered up my life to serve, I'd probably feel more comfortable calling it cool. <laughs> Well, fair point. you know, and it's funny because a lot of this stuff, you know, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for example, I, I don't talk about that very directly. But what I do have is the fall of Taiwan, which is a result of the, our leaving Afghanistan led leads to China invading Taiwan. And so, you know, that's part of what you'll see starting in book three um, is some of the ramifications of that and what it ultimately leads to. And it gives us some great characters out of there too. So you've talked about this and you already said you have book two done. 
Book two is out. Uh, most on Civil War is already available on Amazon and etc. Book three, Confederacy of Fear, is done. The cover's done. The editing's done. I don't think the audiobook's done yet, but uh, that'll be releasing, I've been told, sometime soon. Um, so like a true experience pro, you're like on the ball with this, man. You have your entire story arc ready to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I'm on book five. Book five is really playing out well. Um, I'm blowing up a lot of great American cities and, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it's a, it's a fun experience to go through this and it's, it's a lot, it's very interesting. You know, you get the flavors for the various States. So uh, what kind of tech can we expect from the book? I mean, five to 10 years, that's not five years in the future. That is not a lot of tech advancement. Unless probably, unless it's very specialized. No, no, te the te it's the world we know. And, okay. and that, that actually helps. I think a, for a reader, there's nothing in here that's too alien to people. Well, Jared loves to ask about aliens. I'm sure he's very disappointed. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just Do saying. I like the blue ones? Pardon? Until... <laughs> She's making fun of me. Uh, talking about Avatar. Um, so, I mean, I'm just saying, have you cleared in this series Area 51 yet? If not, there's still the possibility of aliens. Okay. I have not gone there yet. Um, the military kind of gets sidelined in this. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, the military isn't designed to actually be used against the American population. And there's some political oh stuff as to why they don't do that. There's actually some legal rules about the use of them. So the military plays a far less role, but you get more National Guard and militia and private military contractors being engaged in, in this, this strife with the military kind of sitting on the sideline waiting to see who's going to win. Um and there's some defections from the military and stuff, but it, it's, it's a different kind of conflict and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a great journey to be on, to be honest with you. So normally we would ask what cool futuristic tech or, or magical tech you would want uh, from your books. But since it's a modern time sort of thriller, potentially alt history novel, most of the tech in there we're familiar with, but we're going to ask you anyway, of all the cool guns that you got to play with in this series, which one would you want to be like, you know what? I'm adding this to my armory. Uh, I, I am going to add an, an M8, M18 um, just for the grins. Uh, but I, I think the thing that I've enjoyed is having watched some of the footage out of the Ukraine is some stuff that I'm doing with drones that is just, it's cheap and expensive and destructive. <laughs> you know, you can fly a drone with a mortar shell on it and just drop the mortar shell <laughs> on the target. And the Ukrainians have been doing this and you could literally like fly over a truck, drop it, and boom, the truck's gone. Uh, so I'm having some fun with stuff like that that are low-tech solutions that would be employed in a war like this. I love the uh, art, all the articles that came out with they were using, finally using something like uh, Tinder for something useful for. I don't well, like Tinder. This is not my anti-Russia stance. This is just I don't like Tinder. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I I've heard of Tinder. I haven't gone. I, I'm happily married, thank God. Uh <laughs> it's really the best place to be. <laughs> Get away from it. So. 
Wow. All right, Doc. Way to way to derail to the dating apps. But uh, <laughs> I, yeah, they Tinder's not a dating app. Sure, uh, hookup app, whatever. But so you you mentioned using drones. It almost sounds like how some of the first biplanes were used to sort of drop hand grenades out the side when they were before they started, you know, arming them themselves. Oh yeah. Uh, and there is some danger, like you you fly enough of really cheap ones, and you can you know get into the air intake manifolds of you know jets and whatnot, and bring actual expensive warplanes down. Yeah, but um, trying to navigate a drone into a uh, jet that's flying at you know full speed is going to be a real trick. <laughs> you'd almost need to be able to make swarms of them, and I don't know how easy that would be to coordinate. Uh, it's doable. <laughs> so. Um, he might be able to do it, but not you, Jr. So obviously, you know, jokes aside, <laughs> thanks, Doc. That hurts. Uh, jokes aside, like obviously, this book is is not one of your you know sci-fi with all the aliens. But when you go about in the fantasy and the sci-fiction that you write, where you are creating these fantastical creatures or these alien creatures, just you know more broadly, how do you go about creating those? Do you like to make things up out of like you know completely fresh? You know, tap into legend and lore, your nightmares. What's your process? Well, Battletech was always fuzzy tech. Um, you know, the, it was weird because, you the, you know, you'd have this mech that was supposedly carrying 160 missiles and stuff. And it's like, where? You couldn't fit all those missiles inside that. Uh, you know, and we just kind of did what I called hand wavium. We said, okay, well, we'll just pretend that isn't. Yeah, let's not go to the technical level. For Landon, <laughs> which I'm working on, we, we actually have had to really work with plausible technologies, um, and it's 25 years in the future, and it's everything in there is based on stuff that we've read from DARPA reports and from other uh, technological advances that are practical and realistic that would be applied. Um and so that that is good in terms of doing aliens. Uh, we have some of that in the land and sea series. Those I work. I, I have a group of people that I work with at Creative Juggernaut, um, whose company that is doing land and sea, and we we do a lot of serious brainstorming on what the aliens were, are, how they work, how you know, why are they engineered this way? What what makes them different? Why would they exist in this fashion? Uh, and we spend a lot of time making that actually very factual, uh, very plausible in many respects. So, yeah, I, I have a cobble of group of folks that I work with when I have a question like that, and I go to them and say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? We bounce it around and make sure it makes sense before I put it pen to paper. Okay. So is this just, you know, your publishing team or did you, you know, talk to experts in biology and xenobiology and all the things or how did you put together this team? It's our publishing team, but we branch out. I, we will go out and do research, you know, and pull up stuff from experts. So it's fun. Okay. It can be. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's, it's much more of a hard sci-fi with land and sea. And that makes it more interesting. I think a lot of people are, you know, with Battletech, a lot of it, like I said, it's fuzzy tech. It's softer. Let's not, let's not, you know, look under the hood here. Uh, with land and sea, it's like, go ahead, lift up the hood and take a look. You're going to see things here that are going to be completely foreign to you. 
Okay. All right, Doc. I will keep meandering and, and going on all those tangents if you let me. So, so next question is yours. Um, the interview is winding down, but is there anything we didn't cover about Blue Dawn that you want to cover? No, it's it's a fun book to read. It's designed, you know, I, as much as I would tell people it's a conservative book, it's really designed to, you know, make make people think. And good, I think good fiction does that. It, it should elicit emotional reaction. It should get you thinking and it should get you talking about things and, and, and trying to articulate and pull it apart and things like that. And I think any good piece of fiction does that. And I, I like to think this series does that with people. So what would the age range for this be? I would say 21 and older. I mean, okay. I, I'm pretty graphic when I kill somebody. Um, it, it, and I'm being realistic there. I'm oh no, bragging, well, we have it, we have some people who listen with their families, and we've entered and we've read some YA authors on, and we've had a, a couple of sci-fi authors who write children's sci-fi. So I think it's always a good question to ask. It is. It's a very valid question. I I wouldn't have anybody reading this that was not 21 because I think some of the concepts aren't going to click with anyone until they're a little bit older and have been out in the real world too. And then I don't, want, do I don't want, and I don't want some parent calling me up saying I've traumatized their kid. Fair. This is one of those things where when they do understand they'll wish they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Um, this is the part, dear listener, where I remind you that uh, reading and writing is a two-way street. So um, please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part, people. Uh, and if you can't get on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or all the places where you bought the book to leave a review, you know, go to Goodreads, BookBob. If you can't do that, start a website and write them there. But write your reviews, share your thoughts, tell your friends. It's how you get the books you like to come out more of them because if nobody buys them and talks about them, publishers aren't hiring a second edition and they're not hiring second drafts. So, you know, you, you have a part to play as a consumer and, and we encourage you to do that lovingly. So, all right, as we wrap this up, Blaine, can you tell uh, listeners how they can find you? Yeah, you know, the easiest place is blamepardo.com. Um, honestly, the best place to get a hold of me is Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. I'm very active on social media. Um, you know, feel free to engage with me. Um, you know, as long as you're polite about it, I'll engage back. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's a wasteland, it's a wasteland, it's a wasteland out there. And I, you know, I, if you get obnoxious, I will block you. I, I, I don't feel obligated to share my social media platforms with people who want to spew hate. So, you know, if you're bad, you're just going to get blocked. But uh, in the meantime, it's, get a hold of me and we'll have some fun. That is a solid business plan right there, sir. So you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can find our website, which is still anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Any update on where we are with that website, Doc? 
Okay. We will <laughs> we will move. Uh, we'll circle back to that one, as they say. Uh, where you can also add our website. You can support us for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Or you can support us more directly. And it's uh, link is on the bottom of the screen if you're watching instead of uh, listening on the on the Spotify and such. <clears throat> you can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Saska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes or wherever the caffeine goes in your blood. I don't know. I'm not a biologist, people. Gosh, you really couldn't tell. Anyway. I mean, it's, it goes in mouth, makes me feel good. All I need to know about caffeine. More coffee. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber, the addle-brained J.R. Handley, <laughs> I'm Saskia. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place, indulging our love of ner- of cheesy culture. <laughs> Nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all things that go boom. And obviously, I need more caffeine. <laughs>